P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. So I have, first of all, I have to shout out to the investigators in Colorado, the Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado, for their fantastic conference last week in beautiful Breckenridge, California, California, (laughs) Breckenridge, Colorado. Um, It was a fabulous conference, great speakers. Uh, The conference team was outstanding. The hotel was unbelievable. It was just a great conference. So I just want to congratulate Colorado and PPIC for that wonderful time last weekend. And don't forget, focus on your education, the 2018 New York Investigators Conference, November 8th through 11th. If you don't know about it or if you haven't logged on to the website, just Google 2018 New York Investigators Conference and it'll pop right up and you can check it out. All the speakers are listed. You can register there. Uh, It's downtown Manhattan. It's going to be a great week. So, do that because this is uh, this is a venue you can't miss. So uh, today I'm really pleased to introduce you to Dina Clower. Am I pronouncing your name right, Dina? Uh, Claywar is pronounced Claywar, like there's okay. a Y. But yeah. It's supposed to be Y there and there's not, right? Correct. <laughs> correct. Uh, okay, it's great Dina to be with you, Francie. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. So Dina is uh, I'm. This is, uh, we've never had a person with your specialty on the show before. Well, not ex- a little bit, but not totally. A medico legal death investigator. Um, I believe I had Dean Beers, who is d- delves in that area, and I had uh, Don Johnson that delves in that area. But your entire background uh, looks like it was involved in all kinds of forensics. So tell us, tell us a little bit about your experience, Dina, because it's fascinating, I think. Okay, um, so I, I guess it's a, I guess it's still an unsolved mystery as to um, why I was born with the in- investigative gene that I was born with. Um, <laughs> I, I started out as a, a, a child kind of with this strange fascination with shows like Quincy and Emergency and um, used to ride around on my big wheel, you know, with a fireman's hat on and <laughs> ask my parents questions about what would happen in certain situations um, if a police officer pulled you over and so on and so forth. Um, anyway, I, I ended up in high school um, at the um, at an internship in the DA's office, and huh. I did, um, I, I worked there was a guy there um, who kind of took me under his wing and was really doing some cutting-edge forensic techniques for the time. Um, And I I really was, I I got hooked. And um, I went, unlike a lot of my classmates who went straight to college, I I went straight to the police academy. Um, And I was out on the streets of North Philadelphia at, uh, about 19 years of age, um, where I 
experienced my first um, homicide scene. Um, a guy who he actually died in my arms, and um, later I was transferred to the uh, Bureau of Narcotics Investigation, where I <clears throat> worked there for several years. Um, I left uh, law enforcement and um, went to pursue my education. Back then, there was no such thing as online <laughs> education, mm-hmm. um, and um, moved out west, got an undergrad degree in biology, uh, specialized in anatomy and physiology, and then did some graduate work and worked in some research um, labs out in Colorado, and then came back and pursued a, a graduate degree in forensic medicine, kind of combined all of my in, investigative and science background into forensic medicine. Hmm. Um, I became an adjunct professor and uh, was teaching in the field of forensic and then um, got a job for the state of Delaware as a forensic investigator and spent the next six years um, dealing with about 10 to 15 decedents a day um, wow. in investigation. Um, after I left there, I started my own business um, doing forensic consulting and, and um, different forms of investigation. Interesting. Now, uh, you have a, several initials following your name. What do they stand for besides your master's in uh, forensic science? Um, LPI is licensed, is licensed private investigator, and uh, VSM is VDOC Society member. Oh, VDOC Society, yeah. And so you actually are, when you're teaching as an adjunct, you're teaching at a, a school that's a member of the VDOC Society. Am I understanding that uh, correct, correctly? The VDOC Society is an organization out of uh, Philadelphia that um, has all kinds of um, fabulous experts that um, meet once a week, or excuse me, once a month, and uh, review cold cases um, from, and and these experts are from all different disciplines. Um, They pick a case each month, and they fly the people who are presenting this case in, and then um, we do casework on that. So it's not associated with with a oh, I see. college okay. or university. Well, that sounds fascinating. I, we should say that uh, Vidoc was uh, considered the first, the very first private investigator in the world. He's identified as that person. Um, he was from uh, what, France, wasn't he? I believe so, Second. yeah. Yeah, okay. So, okay. So, tell me, Dina... What does a medical legal death investigator do that's different than, say, a homicide investigator or a private investigator that does criminal cases? What do you do? So, uh, what I well, what I did for um, the government, most medical legal death investigators, which uh, again, I mean, it, it, there's probably twenty different names for medical legal death investigator that. Um, kind of mean the same thing. Um, in some jurisdictions, they're they're called forensic investigators, like I was called in Delaware. They're they're called deputy coroners. Um, there's there's a whole bunch of different terms that um, 
like I said, kind of mean the same thing, which my article goes into um, discussing why why that's a kind of. Um, and um, so it's really, you know, as the word entails, it's really combining, you know, medical and legal um, knowledge. Um, and the uh, purpose is to um, determine cause and manner of death of a decedent. So uh, when I worked for government agencies, you know, we uh, screened the calls, we determined jurisdiction, um, we determined if it was a case that falls, fell under the jurisdiction, um, usually something other than a natural death. Um, uh-huh. And then we would um, go to the scene, um, you know, do the, the the normal scene functions of um, photographing and preserving evidence and interviewing police and um, uh, families and um, uh, collecting evidence um, and, um, you know, uh, taking the decedent back to the medical examiner's office in some jurisdictions they don't transport and some they, they do. Um, some, sometimes they have outside, um, uh, people doing the actual transportation. Um, but the, uh, you know, when, when you go back, you know, there's all kinds of logging in of evidence and things like that. Um, and then, there's, you know, even after the, the autopsy, um, if an autopsy is going to be performed, um, there's a whole bunch of investigative functions that, um, that still go on after that to, um, you know, look through, uh, gather medical records, uh, read through them. Um, and all of this information is being um, communicated to uh, the chief medical examiner or coroner whomever it is in that jurisdiction um, to help to determine the cause and manner of death. Obviously, we also need to identify the decedent. That's a, <laughs> that's a big one. That's a good um, one, yeah. And so there's, there's all kinds of, of functions um, there. Um, in the private sector, um, obviously, it's a little different because you're not responding to scenes and things like that. It's more of a after-the-fact um, assessment uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, of whether the case was handled correctly. So, um, so let me back up a second. What's the difference, Dina, between a coroner and a medical examiner? Um, a cor- coroners are uh, elected officials where medical examiners um, are appointed. Um, coroners do not uh, necessarily have to be physicians nor board-certified forensic pathologists. Um, In fact, I've seen some instances where they are neither. Um, And um, unfortunately, that that is still going on in our country. But um, having said that, there there are some very... um, qualified, educated, competent coroners as well. Um, but it, it is more of a, um, a historical kind of system, whereas medical, the medical examiner system I would consider more of a contemporary um, system because they are um, 
physicians and and they are often board certified forensic pathologists. So a, a medical examiner would always be a pathologist, but a coroner might not be. They are the medical examiners are always physicians, yeah. um, and usually okay. they are board certified forensic pathologists. Um, okay. Coroners ne- don't necessarily have to be either. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So, um, so when when any of us who go to court and are involved in the in the legal system, or just sitting in court as a spectator, and we see a pathologist testify. Is that person going to be a medical examiner or maybe not? Um, it, well, um, yes and no. <laughs> not necessarily. Yes and um, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> Sometimes, um, you know, often in, in um, you know, cases that are going through the judicial system, the, the medical examiner or coroner, or, um, if, if they are the ones who perform the autopsy, are going to be the ones that are testifying. Um, mm-hmm. And then they may have, on the other side as well, you know, other um, forensic pathologists or, or people of the, the like um, that are also testifying. They may not necessarily currently be medical examiners or coroners, um, they may be people that are in in the private kind of sector. I see. Okay. So, um, so the duties of a medical examiner. So, am I understanding this correctly? You were an investigator for a medical examiner's office. Correct. Is that, is that correct? Okay. And so the kind. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Were you going no, to say something? That, that was all. Okay. So under that, under the duties of a medical examiner, I'm um, just looking at your article here. Um, you mentioned determining jurisdiction. Of course, identifying the decedent might be really important. Um, but do you also do the notification of next of kin and that kind of work? I, I, that's also another thing that that falls in that uh, maybe <laughs> category. Maybe. Um, some jurisdictions, um, some jurisdictions are res- responsible for the notification of next of kin. Um, in like my particular um, state medical examiner system that I worked in, we were not responsible for notification of next of kin. Although sometimes that kind of happens um, by 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 circumstance, um, but. The, the law enforcement um, agencies were actually the ones responsible in my jurisdiction for the actual notifications. I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's where, the way it is in our jurisdiction as well. Okay. And so, yeah. um, okay. And, and how long were you with the medical examiner's office? I was there six years uh, for, in the state of Delaware. In the state of Delaware, okay. So uh, I, I can imagine that you had you had some unusual experiences in that position. Can you think of any off the top of your head that you want to talk about? Yeah, we uh, yeah there was there was a lot. Um, you know, like I said, we we worked um, we worked with you know sometimes dealing with ten to fifteen cases a day. Um, <laughs> And I always joke with my 
um, family that sometimes they remember my cases better than I do um, <laughs> because they all kind of <laughs> merge into one. Um, yeah. right. But um, they're, they're um, you know, one of the reasons I think it's so important, you know, what I talk about in my article about being, you know, these people, the, the people who are doing these jobs, be, you know, having some kind of standard um, for these jobs, uh, national standards, um, is because, you know, people like myself and the other death investigators out there are the ones that are going to the scenes every day. It's not the medical examiners. It's not, um, I mean, it is the law enforcement, but they are not the ones that are really making certain, at least initial determinations that are crucial Uh to how the case um, is either, um, you know, eventually adjudicated or not. Um, or the the determinations in terms of cause and manner of death. Um, one example, um, I got a call one day about a case uh, where the law enforcement agency had, had told me that they were suspecting that this this was a hit and run um, situation. And um, when I got to the scene and started to assess some things, I noticed some things that didn't quite match up with, um, you know, the, the, that it being a hit and run. Um, one was that uh, I saw some drag marks in the dirt that looked like the body might have been placed there. Um, and then after, you know, doing this, the photographing and all of those things, when I we could eventually start to move the body, I noticed that those he also had dirt marks up the side of his leg. He had periorbital ecchymosis, which is that like raccooning of the eyes, which indicates that he probably had a subdural hematoma, mm-hmm. um, trauma to the head. Um, he had really no uh, lower extremity injuries. Um, which would usually be consistent with a automo- you know, a hit and run automobile accident mm-hmm. or a pedestrian struck by auto accident. Um, and so kind of putting all of these, starting to put all these things together. Oh, he also had defensive wounds on his arms. Um, that would be, that would be a clue together. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I said that would be a clue. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. So putting yeah. all these things together, um, you know, I, I said to the law enforcement agency, we're going to treat this as a homicide, um, you know, bag the hands and let's, let's do this. And, you know, and, and, and most of the people on the scene were um, appreciative of my <laughs> professional opinion. But, you know, there, there were a few that said, no, nah, you know, that's, it, I, I don't think so, but hmm. whatever kind of thing. Right. Um, and, and, it, and it came to be that um, this was, um, a homicide. Um, and, you know, if these things were not, if it was not treated as such, and if we don't have trained professionals out there that can identify these things, um, from a, you know, understanding what happens pathologically to a body after death and identifying trauma and, and certain things, um, you know, we're, we're in trouble. Exactly. So, Dina, who typically at the crime scene makes decisions like, like you just mentioned, begging the hands or looking at something as a homicide or, or uh, 
taking gunshot residue uh, samples from a person and that kind of thing? Who makes those decisions? Well, in, in terms of the body itself, it's supposed to be the, the, whomever it is that's responding from the coroner or medical examiner's office. It's supposed mm. to be. <laughs> I see. Um, is, the, is the operative word. But, um, you know, and then the rest of the scene itself, um, things like that are, are determined by the law enforcement agencies and crime scene people and things like that. You know, some, sometimes your um, job duties and functions are kind of overlapping and, 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 you know, usually in my experience, you know, I've, I worked very well with the law enforcement agencies um, in doing those things. Um, as to, again, it, it depends so much. Like, for example, where I worked, we also had a forensic laboratory that was connected with the medical examiner's office. So oftentimes I would take back things like um, drugs or other evidence directly to the medical examiner's office. Um, of course, adhering to chain of custody issues uh-huh. and things like that. Um, uh-huh. Other times, that's not what's done. You know, sometimes the law enforcement agencies themselves are the ones that are collecting and supporting the um, pieces of evidence such as that. I can certainly see there's a problem if those um, duties aren't clearly defined. If, um, if, if you, as a medical examiner, or working for the medical examiner's office, believes you're supposed to be doing one thing and maybe whoever is in charge of the crime scene uh, thinks something else can happen. I can see there could be some conflicts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, it happens, unfortunately, but, um, you know, and I, and, and again, I don't want to give the, um, uh, state that, you know, this is, this is, that law enforcement and, and medical examiners or coroners are always at odds. It's not the case, but um, there are times that, um, you know, I, and I think it just, it just comes from a lack of really understanding what it is that death investigators do or don't do. And because mm-hmm. every jurisdiction is so different in terms of uh, what they do and how they do it, it, it just, it becomes very confusing. Um, uh-huh. You know, I, I talk about in my article that, I mean, even guys that I work next to all the time from the law enforcement agencies, you know, who we had guys and women, <laughs> excuse me, um, uh-huh. that I work next to, they, you know, they didn't really understand the, the complexity um, or intricacies of our job. Um, and, and I talk about in my article that, you know, one of the guys that I work next to all the time in the crime scene unit walked by my office one day and he was looking at, you know, 15 reports on my, on my desk and was like, oh, oh, wow, you know, you guys actually write reports? <laughs> and I, you know, I, it's, I'm like, what, what do you mean? What we do? You know, and, and so, in unfortunately, in a lot of jurisdictions, they, you know, were kind of looked at as, glorified uh, body picker-uppers or, or body snatchers. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've heard uh-huh. that term as well. Um, uh-huh. You know, where, you know, they just come in, get the body, you know, the, the police are doing their thing, and, and, and you know, we just basically are a, a transport system. Um, 
Now, now in some places that that may be true, um, but from from what I have seen, you know, often often not. And even if it is true, they still need to understand, um, you know, what to, how to um, preserve evidence, which right. the body is. Right. So, I just, I actually just saw, you know, since I had written this article a little while back, I recently um, Googled, again, like, um, you know, death investigators, and I was looking across the country and uh, at these jobs, and I just, I just came across one the other day where, you know, the only qualification for um, this, this state to hire this to hire a death investigator was that they have a GED and a driver's license. No way. Um, oh my goodness. I mean, that's, and they were paying them $11 an hour. So, wow. it, I mean, this is, this is tragic, <laughs> you know, that this it is. is what, this is what we're doing to these cases and, and our, and our loved ones, you know, and not having really, um, qualified, educated people um, at these scenes assessing these things. When, yeah, and one of the things you addressed, Dina, was the lack of standards. Um, and it seems like that, sounds like that's a, a problem really across the country. Absolutely. Um, you know, every, every state, every county, every, everywhere, ha- you know, is, is, is doing something slightly different. Um, and you know, e- even if there are some um, standards or um, uh, you know qualifications, um, I-, I just saw another um, job, you know, and this is in one of the most affluent areas in this country, and they are paying death investigators thirty-five thousand dollars a year. They have all kinds of qualifications. But, you know, how do you get good people who are going to work for, you know, um, you know, basically less than minimum wage? Um, right. So it's, um, yeah, they, you know, and I, and I talk about creating some kind of national um, standards that, that every state and, and local jurisdiction has to ad- adhere to. For sure, and and um, I know you're a member of the American Board of Medi- Medico Legal Death Investigators. Can't, do they have any influence to get some laws passed? Because it, it would have to be done state by state, I guess. Well, I'm actually not a, a member anymore. On um, unfortunately, the ABMDI um, does not allow membership to people who are not currently employed by government agencies. Oh, really? Um, Okay. I I mentioned that I don't don't agree with that because the unfortunate thing about that is that, you know, people in that are independent um, uh, medical legal death investigators, then they don't have to adhere to any standards. Mm -hmm. Um, So I... I, um, you know that's that's a problem. That's a huge problem. Yeah, they, they, 
if they're not getting input from the private sector, that's a huge, huge problem. Correct. So, and, you know, again, you know, unfortunately, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, you know, un- unfortunately, there were over the years some people in the private sector that did some things that um, <laughs> were not appropriate, like, you know, in- investigators doing autopsies. Um, that- that's not appropriate. <laughs> um, really? So, you know, there were some things that were done by people in the private sector, which I can understand, um, you know, people within the, the, the government agencies or ABMDI or, or things like that, having some hesitation to want to allow people from kind of the private sector in and to have a voice. But again, I think, you know, if, if you have certain types of standards and qualifications to allow people in or not in, um, then, then you solve that problem. Well, I, and Dina, I understand from your article that you, uh, were contacted by the White House, um, uh, the policy analyst for medical and forensic services at the White House requesting a copy of the article you wrote. Did you ever hear from them? I did not. You, you had sent your article and you, they never got back to you. Correct. That's discouraging. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. if you were to define and and decide on standards for this for this profession, what what list would you give us? What list of of uh, requirements would you give us? Well, um, some of the things that I would suggest. Um, oh, oh, kind of on, on a on a more overall scale in terms of um, it, you know I talked about earlier the coroner system kind of being you know a bit of an outdated system um, and moving in jurisdictions towards more um, towards the medical examiner system. Um, you know, I, I also mentioned in here that. You know, a lot of times I get pushback on that idea saying, you know, well, that's not possible because there's such vast, um, you know, large jurisdictions that that's not possible. But, you know, look, I mean, the state of Delaware, where I worked for many years, had a a state-run medical examiner system. Um, Alaska um, has a state-run medical examiner system, Um, and, and and it works fairly you know, fairly well. Um, I uh, would definitely not um, co-mix or mingle law enforcement agencies with um, medical examiner um, or coroner's offices. That is done all too frequently in this country um, Hmm. where, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, coroner's, Especially, they are um, they're they're uh, they're they're within the sheriff's department, um, or sometimes they're even within you know some other form of law enforcement agency. And the purpose, you know, of this job as a medical legal death investigator or as a medical examiner or coroner is to perform unbiased investigations, um, you know, mm-hmm. especially 
investigations that may involve law enforcement agencies. You know, I there was many times over my career I had to investigate um, police-involved shootings and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, you you want to be performing unbiased investigations, and that doesn't work so well <laughs> when you're part of a law enforcement agency. Um, right, for sure. So that's a that's that's something that I would definitely suggest creating some separation. Um, and like I said, creating some kinds of national standards for hiring and recruiting um, death investigators um, and guidelines um, that these um, medical examiners and coroner's offices have to abide by. You know, it's mm-hmm. unacceptable to say that you know, the person who's going to be responding to a scene to assess pathological, you know, to make pathological assessments um, and direct the law enforcement agencies, you know, well, we're only requiring a driver's license and a GED. It's unacceptable, you know, in, mm-hmm. in my book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, and I... And I can, I mean, I can certainly um, sense the politics involved at the crime scene, um, because in probably in many cases that that investigator from the medical examiner's office is probably the lowest person on the totem pole in the whole crime scene arena. So I could see how um, their decisions maybe wouldn't be accepted very readily, if at all. And like with the pushback you got with the uh, what looked like an accident investigation and turned out to be a homicide, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it, I mean, it happens. And, you know, and plus, I mean, I, I guess it doesn't need to be said that a lot of times there's egos involved. And, uh, <laughs> and, Absolutely. Uh, I, yeah. That's and, you huge, know, some. Um, That, that's a huge um, issue. I, I believe that, you know, the number one reason that we have so many cold cases in this country is, is that one word alone, ego. Really? <laughs> um, really? And, I, and I, absolutely. I, you know, and, you know, we, that's why it's, it's so you know, wonderful to have organizations, you know, like VDOC, like the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases, like like these different organizations where, and, and, and a lot of these were created, and, and the founders, uh, I think, I think would tell you the same thing, that, you know, if you look at, I mean, and this is, this is kind of across the board, if you look at law enforcement agencies, if you look at, at um medical examiner's offices and, and, and so on and so forth, if you look at these cold cases, it, most often times you will see that one detective, you know, this sat on one detective's um, mm-hmm. desk for, you know, or in the filing cabinet for years and years and years. And, um, you know, and, and when somebody else would say, hey, you know, Hey Joe, let me take a look at that. No, 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 no. You know, this is this yeah. is my case. Right. I, I got this, right? And right. you know, so we we need both inside government agencies and externally. We need you know um, 
we need panels of people who are the, the, the experts in varied professions with varied backgrounds, you know, and I do this with my own cases as well. I don't solve cases in a vacuum, you know, I want, I want every, I want other experts opinions. And if, and if I am not the one that has the most expertise in you know, whatever area I'm investigating, I, I'm going to call that person that does. Um, and, and that's how cases are solved, not in a vacuum. Absolutely. And, and you know what? I mean, we've all been there where we get, we're working on something, we kind of get tunnel vision on what we think the theory of the case is. And I know this happens in, in law enforcement because I see it. And it takes you know an, a fresh set of eyes sometimes, a different set of eyes to look at it and say, well, well, what about this little piece of information that wasn't followed up? And sometimes that's, that's the key. It's that little piece of information. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm really glad that you uh, came out to the private sector and so you can teach us all about this. This is, this is fascinating to me because I, uh, I have never gotten into this side of of what goes on uh, at a crime scene. So this is this is fascinating. Dina, we're going to need to take a quick break. We'll be right back and uh, sure. we'll hear more from Dina Claywar. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie 
at PISdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Dina Claywar. She is a licensed investigator, uh, and she's also a medico-legal forensic consultant, formerly with a medical examiner's office. And we were just talking offline, Dina, about uh, a couple of cases you had. You were telling me about the woman in the bathtub. Yes. Um, well, first off, a woman in a bathtub is never, <laughs> I've learned this over the time, um, is, is never a good um, scene. Um, <laughs> you always want to keep that situation um and I and and I knew this from this. I, I believe this was probably one of the first cases of a woman in a bathtub I had handled. Um, but um, fortunately, you know, again, because of my training, looking at at pathologic assessment and and things like that, and also, you know, I mean, some of these things, you know, I talk about having an innate instinct as a as an investigator mm-hmm. um on cases and um not that you know not that necessarily you know not that, that, that you're going to testify to your instinct <laughs> in court right. but right. um you know sometimes you just you just got a hunch about certain cases and um this case there was a, a, an elderly woman um dead in a bathtub and um she had all kinds of uh, medical issues um, which, you know, could have led to her being dead in a bathtub. Um, mm-hmm. But there was also some abnormal bruising and so on and so forth. Um, and just through the interviewing process with both the police and my and myself um, with a potential suspect, it just, you know, the stories just didn't seem to add up. Um, and it ended up uh, at... At autopsy, we found even much, much more injury that wasn't even um, visible at the scene. Um, but again, mm. you know, if 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 I didn't treat that uh, situation as a potential homicide, if I didn't know what I was looking at, um, and and help to to um, guide the protection of evidence, both. But, the evidence of the body and the rest of the house, mm-hmm. um, you know, that case, that case may not, um, have been solved. Um, so it's just really important stuff. So in that case, who was the perpetrator? Um, I, I can't get into that. <laughs> oh, is, is it, you, is it not resolved? Is the case not resolved? I, I honestly don't know if the case is resolved, but I, I don't want to get into those to those details. Okay. Okay. That's fair. All right. And then you had yeah. another situation involving a, a fire. Let's talk about that one. Yeah, I had um, a case of a fatal house fire, um, and um, a decedent... Um, at autopsy, um, showed soot in his lungs, um, which would, um, lead us to believe that he was breathing, um, Mm -hmm. when the, the fire, um, actually occurred. Um, was the fire arson? Um, we, we weren't sure, obviously at that, at that time, um, it, 
it ended up that um, the fire marshal's office determined that it was um, started by a cigarette um, in his home. Um, so it was not it was not arson. Um, but the, the big issue with this case was that we we couldn't identify this guy and we can't release a body that we can't identify. Um, we could not obviously obtain fingerprints. He was burned, um, beyond recognition. Um, we couldn't identify him through visual identification cause he was burned beyond recognition. Um, we could not find dental records. Um, so the, you know, that brings us to DNA. Um, and in this particular case, um, I mean, we went down the line from one child to the next. Um, and when I say child, I'm talking about 50 year old, um, mm-hmm. men. <laughs> okay. Um, and unfortunately, uh, each child came up that they were not a match to the decedent, which led us to two possible scenarios. Either the decedent was not who we thought he was, <laughs> or, he was not the father of these 50-year-old children that whom they thought was their father all of these years. Um, uh-huh. And it ended up that I kept having discussions with um, the mother and the, the ex-wife of this decedent and saying, you know, is there a possibility that these children were not his? And, and of course, you know, the answer was no, no, no. <laughs> right. Until, um, until the end. And it we finally got another um, relative. We had to do mitochondrial DNA, send it off. That took another, like, three months. So this this guy was in our freezer for close to a year um, before we eventually identified him. And it ended up that all of these, you know, 50 or so-year-old children found out that this was um, the not, decedent not was their not father. their father. Interesting. What a shock. What a shock. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That is fascinating. What you said was um, a minute ago uh, struck me. So you can't release a body until you identify who they are? Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, I can think of maybe a lot of times there's a homeless person that um, dies on the street and um, there's no connection to anyone. So what do you do with that? (laughs) <laughs> a lot of digging. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. So we, um, well, we, you know, again, we we try to start with if if there's nobody for visual identification, and and we don't always, again, want to, depending on the condition of the body, especially, we don't always want to rely on that um, as a form of positive identification. Um, so we can look at fingerprints. Um, if they have fingerprints, we can try to run those through a system. We can try to, like I said, obtain um, some kind of dental records. You know, even if they're homeless, maybe sometimes mm-hmm. they went through some kind right. of um, medical uh, treatment. Uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of homeless have, uh, you know, have been to the ER, right? Um, right, through right. Some, and, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe they had some kind of implant or, or, or x-rays that we can do some kind of comparative studies. Um, and, and eventually, you know, we end up trying DNA, running that. If that doesn't work, um, 
you know, then we're looking at, you know, maybe putting them in some kind of database system like, um, like NamUs, for exam- mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. Um, the National Association, I think it was the, the missing and unidentified. Right. Um, yeah. And, and that system too, like we can, we can look, it's, you know, law enforcement and medical examiners can access that from one route and families and, and other people can identify, can access it from another route. Um, so, you know, you just, you just keep going. And, and sometimes, I mean, there, there has been situations where, you know, you end up having bodies for 20 years, um, that have never been identified. Um, we had a whole bunch of cases that we were working on skeletal remains cases, um, that we probably had 20 different individuals, um, uh, over the years, um, that we were trying to still, um, identify through, through some of those ways. That's amazing. That's a really amazing. So, um, Dina, if people wanted to contact you, uh, and, you know, possibly hire you or ask for your advice, how would they do that? Um, the best way would be to go on my website. It's, um, it's my last name, C-L-A-W-A-R investigation.com. And, um, there's a way to email me directly on there, which is, is the way that people would get the, the quickest response. Okay. All right. And so today, um, do you work on, um, criminal cases involving homicides? What, what do you, what are you doing? I am doing a lot, all kind of a lot of different things. Um, I, yes, I still do work on homicides. I work on cold cases through a lot of, um, those different organizations I mentioned earlier. Um, I, I work on criminal, all kinds of different criminal cases. Um, um, you know, from <laughs> the the guy who stole the beer out of the neighbor's refrigerator right. to, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, right. you know, um, to uh, medical malpractice uh, cases that kind of delve more into the civil end of of things. Um, uh-huh. You know, my my business has kind of grown and and take taken some, um, I, I guess I would say unexpected <laughs> turns, like um, right. especially more into the civil end of things as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know that of course medical legal um, forensic consulting is is my my niche and my passion, um, but. But I work all kinds of cases, even surveillance and um, domestic situations and all kinds okay. of stuff like that as well. Well, I could see your medical uh, experience. I mean, maybe even just uh, the point of reviewing uh, medical reports, reviewing uh, hospital records, things like that would be valuable just by itself. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, you were one of the forensic te- technicians at the World Trade Center Recovery. Can you talk about that a little bit, Dina? Because that must have been uh, just uh, an amazing process that, that you went through there. And uh, overwhelming as yeah. well. Yes, it was. Um, you know, I... Uh, 
I have some some personal connection to that situation. I mean, my my sister was actually right next to in the building next to the World Trade Center um, when it came down. Um, my an aunt of mine was supposed to be working in the basement that day and called out sick. Um, mm. I, I had a cousin who was right down the street as well. Like so, there was a lot, and then of course all of the. Uh, amazing law enforcement and, and firefighters, which I still consider brothers and sisters, um, that we lost that day as well as all the uh, civilians. And, and um, so uh, it was years later um, when they were going to start building on um, at Ground Zero that, um, you know, they started excavating. Uh, that there was more more um, um, bo- 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 body parts, if you will, um, there and things that still needed to be um, assessed. Mm. And so I uh, was working with a crew of um, forensic anthropologists um, and students um, in Brooklyn, and basically they were um, taking, you know, truckloads of material out of, ground zero and bringing it over to us and we were you know in Tyvek suits and masks and and um sifting through bucket bucket by bucket of material um to try to um you know continue to identify some um remains of individuals um or any other kind of forensic evidence that may be um, it may be important. Mm-hmm. And and uh, how how many years was that after nine eleven that you were doing that? Oh gosh, it was it was many years. Uh, I I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was it was quite a few years um, after after the original incident. Well, that. That must have been a fascinating uh, process. But you know what, Dina, we're at the end of our hour, believe it or not. Uh, it's been really nice talking to you. Uh, I, I wish you well in your, your uh, forensic career. I hope you are able to have uh, more kinds of cases that apply to your specialty. So, um, so folks, thank you to PI Magazine, Jim Nanos, and Nicole Cusinelli, if you are interested in Dina's article, it's in the September-October 2016 issue of PI Magazine, and it's called uh, Death Investigations There's room for, is a Room for Improvement. So thank you, Dina, so much. Uh, tune in again next week, folks. We de- You're welcome. As we dis- declassify more real stories from real investigators like Dina, it's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 